Good morning, Sovereign Grace. Um, I know this is a bit strange for all of us. I'm here in uh, Brendan Murphy and Christian Combs' apartment um, filming a sermon for today. Uh, The sermon that we're going to look at, the text we're going to look at today, is actually uh, not in our Hebrew series. We will return to Hebrews next week via our recording as we continue to meet in small groups or as families um, and listen to the sermon that way. But this morning I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15 and just talk a bit about our situation. So let me begin by reading 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and just some selections of that and then, then with a word of prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now I'm going to drop down to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, or to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I'm going to continue down at verse 50. But I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And I'll conclude with verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give thanks. We give thanks for your word. 
We give thanks for the fact that your word was superintended by your spirit at the hand of the Apostle Paul and with regard to writing to the Corinthian church. But not only for the Corinthian church, but for your church in every age. For your church in every circumstance, even the circumstance we find ourselves in in this extraordinary moment as a nation. Father, we pray for the church that we would hear what it is that your spirit is saying to the churches. That we would hear the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speak to us by word and spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, between 249 and 262 AD, there was a plague that ravaged the Roman Empire. The unbelieving world panicked, and many of the people fled the cities when they were able to do so. And in doing so, when they fled the cities, they would often leave behind their sick to suffer and die alone. During this plague, Christians took a remarkably different approach, an approach that many argue helped bring about the rapid rise of Christianity in the empire. Christians stayed behind to help their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were ill. They also, at great cost of themselves, stayed behind and helped the unbelievers around them who were sick, those who had been abandoned by their unbelieving family and friends. They knew that this meant that they might contact the illness and die themselves. But many stayed and helped those who were sick and dying and gave their lives doing so. According to Bishop Dionysius, most of our brothers, this is a quote, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of of their neighbors, and cheerfully accepting their pains. Secular rulers, even the emperor Julian, a a century later, noted how committed the Christians were to helping the sick and the poor. He complained that they were actually outdoing the Hellenists, in showing virtue. By the Hellenists, we mean those Greco-Roman pagans who ruled at the time. The question is, what empowered the early church to give up their lives for the sick and the poor in this way? What drove them to lay down their own safety and well-being for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ and for the sake of unbelievers who were in need? And the simple answer is this, and it really is the central truth that I want to get at this morning, the primary point I want to hopefully see stick with you. The gospel the church preached informed the lives the church lived. The gospel that they proclaimed transformed them and caused them to live quite differently from the world around them. So this morning, in the midst of an extraordinary time in our own country, 
in which our church is not able to meet corporately under rule of, of our government, our state government, I want to consider three things really. I want to consider first the gospel message that we preach, and we'll really look at that in verses 1 through 8, particularly the first few verses um, of Paul there in 1 Corinthians 15. Second, I want to consider the gospel kingdom we await, and we'll really look at verses 20 through 26 and 50 through 55. And then finally, or thirdly, I want to consider the gospel reward that we work for. And that's really going to be looked at in verse 58. So let's look first at the gospel message we preach. The gospel message we preach. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. In other words, Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of the gospel that he preached to them. They heard that gospel message proclaimed to them by the Apostle Paul. And they received it, the gospel which you received. It isn't a gospel that they toyed with or tinkered with or came up with their own definitions for. It's a gospel they received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Now notice what Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. In other words, Paul also received this gospel message. Paul received this gospel message, and then he preached it to others. And that's what we do. We receive the gospel message, and then we proclaim it to others. It isn't a gospel message we have the right to mess with. It isn't even a gospel message that is defined in how we live. It is a gospel message about something that was done. There are historical facts we're proclaiming. Look at verse 3. The, For I delivered to you as a first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament promised a Messiah would come and die for our sins. And that Messiah, Jesus Christ, has come and died for our sins. We can see the promises of that in a passage we all know, like Isaiah 53. He would die for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And by dying for our sins, that means He stood in our place and took our condemnation when He went to the cross. He was punished for our sin. He substituted Himself for us and received the penalty do to us. Verse 4, that he was buried. In other words, he died for our sins and he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, notice the gospel facts. He died for our sins, as the Old Testament promised he would. He was buried, as the Old Testament promised he would be. And he was raised on the third day, as the Old Testament promised he would be, in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve, that's the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, Paul's saying, you can go check with them. They're still alive, go ask them, they saw him. Though some have fallen asleep, and that's a euphemism for death. Some of them have died. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So it's not just that Paul heard this message, received this message proclaimed. It is that Paul heard the gospel preached by Christ himself when Christ appeared to him. This is the message which we preach. Christ lived, Christ died, and he was buried, and he rose from the dead. We've received this message, and we proclaim this message. It's not a message we tinker with. This is the gospel, the good news. And this good news is to be proclaimed. And as we proclaim it, we proclaim it without shame, knowing that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we proclaim this message. We speak it. Now, I know it's popular to talk about living the gospel or being the only gospel message that someone might read. There's a saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which is quite popular. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Which is a silly saying because it's a bit like saying feed the hungry at all times and when necessary, use food. It's just nonsense. The gospel is not something we do. It is something we live, not something we live. The gospel is the message we proclaim of what Christ has done. It is the message about Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't mean that the gospel doesn't affect the way we live. In fact, we certainly have transformed lives as a result of the power of the gospel being preached to us by the Holy Spirit. And the gospel certainly informs the way that we live. But the way that we live is not the gospel. And frankly, um, the gospel does shape our lives. And that's really the point I'm wanting to drive at this morning. We proclaim a gospel message, a gospel message that also shapes the way that we live. And that leads to my second point. The gospel kingdom we await. The gospel kingdom we await. Look at verse 20 through 26. Paul has been talking about um, those who deny the resurrection. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. See, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's a historical fact. He had just said that that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're to be most of, of all people to be pitied. But he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's the first fruit of a coming harvest of those who've died. All those who have died in Christ will be resurrected in Christ on that great day. Look what he goes on to say in verse 21. For as by a man came death, and we know that man is going to be Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned and ate the forbidden fruit that God had commanded them not to eat, Adam and Eve, in bringing sin into the world, also brought death into the world. For the wages of sin is death. That's why we die, because of the penalty of sin. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now he's going to explain himself. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, in other words, his return, that great day for which we're waiting, then when he returns, those who belong to Christ, 
That's when they'll be resurrected from the dead. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now that until does not mean that he'll cease to reign after he's put all his enemies under his feet. It's not an issue of saying he's reigning and then once this until happens, he ceases to reign. It's, it's pointing out the fact that he's reigning now on the Davidic throne in heaven. As he says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. And he's reigning there as he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's reigning there now until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I don't intend to exposit every part of this text. Um, I think it's fairly clear even in just the reading of it. But I, I do want to ask the question, primarily what is Paul getting at? And what he's primarily getting at is that there's a gospel kingdom which we are awaiting. We've already been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son as to our citizenship status. We are no longer primarily citizens of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of Christ. We've already gone from death to life spiritually. We've experienced a spiritual resurrection in being born again by the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel and the receiving of it through faith. As Paul will say, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. However, though that's true, though we've been spiritually resurrected and our citizenship is now in the kingdom of Christ above all else, The fact is that we still live in this body of death. That's why Paul will say, who will deliver me from this body of death? We still face the prospect of sorrow and suffering and death. We still live in a fallen world. We still struggle in a battle against the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. What I'm saying is there's an already, if you will, an already and a not yet, to the kingdom of Christ. Christ has raised us spiritually and we are seated with him in heavenly places as Ephesians 2 says. But we are still also living here facing sin, suffering, sorrow, and death. Yes, Christ's resurrection guarantees our future resurrection from the dead. Christ's resurrection breaks the power of death and our lifelong slavery to the fear of death. But our blessed hope is that Christ will soon return. And when he does, he fully and finally puts death in its grave and takes the sting out of death's hand. In other words, we no longer have to fear death. Now, we don't fear death. It's, it's, the reason is, is not because we arrogantly think we won't have to struggle mightily against sin or because we're immune to suffering or sorrow or death. Death is still our enemy. It still stalks us. But death does not have the final word. Christ has the final word. And that changes how we live. While death is a terrible enemy, we can also say, as Paul does, that death is gain. Why? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, you might wonder if it's a little dramatic. 
and I think it's fair to ask, is it a little dramatic to preach a message like this in a situation in which we have no verified cases of COVID-19 in our county and no real sense of how bad this virus may or may not be in the U.S. Um, But I'm not preaching this because I suspect COVID-19 is going to be like the plague of the third century. I'm preaching this because I don't want you to miss the implications of the gospel for your daily lives. Not just for your lives during a national crisis, but your lives even without a crisis. We are not those who live for this world. Now that should especially be shown to be true in the midst of a national crisis. But it ought to be true every day, with or without a crisis. We are those who live for the kingdom of Christ. That is the great implication of the gospel we preach. Our lives are no longer our own. We belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our hearts are no longer seeking after the things of this world. Our hearts are longing for heaven. Our daily preparations are no longer bent toward our comforts here, but are bent toward the glories to come. And that leads to my third point, the gospel reward we work for. Look with me, if you will, um, down at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now what's Paul doing here with the Corinthian church? He's just summed up the fact that Christ will soon return, and at the blast of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will be raised, and those of us who are alive on the day of his return will be transformed, and our perishable bodies will be transformed and we will put on the imperishable and we'll live forever with Christ and death's sting will be removed and death will be swallowed up in the victory, really the victory of Christ's resurrection and our being resurrected with him. And he's saying, I want you to remember this. And here comes the therefore of verse 58. Therefore, because this is true, because we await a future resurrection from the dead, Because that's true, my beloved brothers, we can be steadfast in the midst of suffering, in our struggle against sin, in the face of death, persecution, plagues, famines, whatever it is, we can be steadfast in the faith, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, why is our labor not in vain? Because the resurrection teaches us that our labor is not in vain. Because Christ is going to return to reward us. He rewards us with everlasting life, resurrection from the dead, in his presence forevermore. So as we expend our lives for Christ and his kingdom, We do so knowing that we will reap a great reward in Christ. Now, I've sent the grace group leaders and every member a set of questions with biblical texts. 
for the purpose of um, your groups discussing them. But I want you to spend time with your families and or your grace group discussing how each of these passages teach Christians to live in light of our resurrected realities. Please note that we are empowered to trust and obey God's word in these matters precisely because we are those who believe in the resurrection of the dead and because our citizenship is in heaven from which we await our blessed hope, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sovereign Grace, I pray we do not miss this opportunity for the church to demonstrate to the world the power of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. It is because he lives that we don't have to gather into barns, cower in a corner, avoid the reality of the fear of death, nor rail against the authority of our government. We can joyfully give ourselves away for one another and for our neighbors precisely because Christ has risen, which is the greatest evidence that our Father cares for us, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That is the greatest evidence that our Father cares for us and that we need not worry. May we seek Christ and his kingdom together in an extraordinary time in our nation. Now I want to give you some announcements. First, we will not have Sunday morning or Sunday evening services through the end of March. Second, we will continue to meet like this um, via video until the end of March. Three, all other planned activities will go forward as currently planned because they're not large group activities. Fourth, we are praying for the Lord to make his name great, hopefully together, praying for the Lord to make his name great through the loving action and bold preaching of our people. Fifth, we are still waiting to see what our arrangements will be for the first two Sundays in April. We have no idea where we'll meet the first two Sundays in April. We're we're waiting on an answer for that. Sixth, please be checking on other members, Uh, particularly be checking on the older members in our church, Um, or anyone who you hear might be sick. Seventh, please don't use this occasion to ridicule the government as they sort through this. Rather, pray for all those whom God has put in authority. Eighth, please don't ridicule unbelievers in their panic. Of course they're afraid of death. They ought to be afraid of death. They do not know the one who conquered the grave Rather than ridiculing their fear of death, tell them about the one who can deliver them from it. Ninth, please pray for health care workers. Tenth, please let us know if you become sick or if you aren't coming to one of our gatherings or if you need any kind of help. We want to be able to care for you the best that we can. And eleventh, please get the Church Center app and connect to it soon if you have not already. The reason being, that's our primary tool for communicating, which just got more useful as of this week. Um, So we encourage you to get the Church Center app, download it, and connect to it. Also, be watching our website uh, for these kinds of updates. With that said, let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for Christ's life, death on the cross that atones for our sins and resurrection from the dead. We're thankful that he promised to return that he is resurrected as the first fruits of those um, of us who die and will die in Christ, of those of us who are living when he returns, who trust in your Son. We're thankful that his return is our blessed hope, that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, 
And we pray that we would proclaim that message of what Christ has done and that our lives would be transformed by it in such a way that we would be a light to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.